Beat Yourself Up Hotline. This is Ravi speaking. How can I help today? Is, is this the Beat Myself Up Hotline? Yes, sir. If you want to beat yourself up, this is the place to do it. I'd like to beat myself up, please. Go right ahead when you're comfortable. I ordered from another one of these shrimp guys that sent their package. And again, I got a package of dead shrimp. They weren't colorful. They weren't alive. Hell, they're not even edible now. They're so damn small. I mean, when am I going to learn? What am I going to do? Just set my wallet on fire while it's in my pants and I'm wearing it? I just I just don't even know what to do anymore. Wow, you're really good at this beating yourself up thing. Well, I mean, it's just something that you get better with at practice, I guess. I've been told that I'm so good at it because I do it all the time. Well, you can go and not beat yourself up and go to joeshrimpshack.com. They have... Oh. 15% off using promo code Aquarium Guys at checkout, and you even get free six inches of cholo wood. And wow. all better, they have a live arrival guarantee. Oh, well, man, I wish that I would have thought of that myself. Why can't I ever think of anything myself? I'm just not good at anything. Wow, you, you are good at this. JoeShrimpShack.com. Don't beat yourself up about it. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys Podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. All right, guys, welcome to the Aquarium Guys Podcast. Jimmy? Yes. Jimmy, you're yes. looking good today, buddy. I did. I put on new shirts for you. I, I appreciate that. You're, you're smelling good. You know, normally you smell like bread and I'm on a diet and that's frankly offensive. Really? I'm not even carb or gluten free, and I just can't I can't handle it anymore. How's the fat shaming going? Fat shaming's great. So uh, before we get into that, I'm your host Rob Solson. Hey, I'm Jim Colby, and I'm Adam Elnashire. Today we are happy to have Les from Cobalt Aquatics back on the podcast, and Les right now is in an undisclosed location, staying as uh, quarantine friendly as possible on a sunny beach, showing us some uh, some sunsets and. Uh, a, a beautiful white beaches. So only you can guess where he's at. I'm guessing he's on the beach. Got to be North America, though. That's, <laughs> that's where I'm guessing. Les, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, guys. Thank you for putting up with me and my sunset. Hey, you know, for the listeners, we're going to do best quality we can. You know, being in these disclosed locations, it's a little wind on the beach. And, uh, you know, you got a Corona uh, pop, don't you, buddy? Um, I got my Cobalt Yeti with a uh, nice rum punch going right now now on sale in aquatics.com no i hope do you get the rum punch with it i'll take two take two <laughs> all right well a mango rum fruit punch with fresh cut pineapple watermelon and lime oh my J- jimmy jimmy feels out of place he's like why can't i live that life right I, now I, i'm thinking i wish i was in the bahamas too don't we all well, again, thanks for uh, joining us. We're going to answer a couple questions from our listeners. But again, you uh, said, how's the fat shaming? And I did round two of fat shaming. I went from, I think it was like, was it 370 something? And now I'm down to 344. So I'm, I'm losing weight steadily here going uh, going forward. But uh, I started out with fat shaming as my motivation. And it's clearly working. So I did another round. My favorite was uh, they moved that rack out so your belly didn't hit the towel rack. He was referring to my new beta rack I just got. Oh, really? So, uh, you know, fish-related fat shaming. It's always, a, it's always a good time. Adam was nice to me. He didn't uh, participate in fat shaming this round. How dare you, Adam? I didn't know it was a public thing. Absolutely. You got to go to my Facebook, add me as a friend. 
Fat shame we lose more weight. What's Facebook? Oh boy. Yeah. See, when we started a podcast, Jimmy's like, what is a podcast? And now now he's an epic podcaster. And now now I'm wondering what, what Facebook is. Well, now we need to get you a Facebook page. No, we're not going on Facebook. Actually, no. that would be hey Jim, did you bring what? the dog collar for him this time? Oh, I never even thought about bringing the dog collar. Shame on you. All right, so we're, we're taking a collection for Rob's shock collar. Collection for Rob's shock collar. <laughs> oh, shit. I'll buy two. One for each leg. So we got some questions this week. And first one says, hey, I asked a couple questions a couple months, months ago. This is in Discord. About keeping a pond in extreme heat. I remember that question. I think we read it on air. Uh, said, I've put it, a cloth over the pond for shade. I'm still having uh, issues cooling. I've been putting gallon jugs of ice to keep it to below 90 um 90 degrees i've got it down to 82 but it's uh, with me back to work this week i won't be able to ice the pond any ideas also tap water is 87 degrees right now it only gets hotter as the summer goes so i can't use consistent water change to cool it either well um obviously they're not from minnesota right so that and even in minnesota i mean we have water that gets real you know real pee warm so it gets that 90 some degrees in lakes and ponds and streams but it's going to happen. What you need to do is just need to ride the wave. The fish species that you have in a pond are going to be, uh, you know, koi, goldfish, stuff, stuff like that. They're going to be able to handle those temperatures. Um, the idea is you try to reduce it as much as possible by doing shade. Using ice is crazy expensive to get that much ice in there continually. And really, it's going to be a drop in the bucket for any size pond. So forget the ice. Don't worry so much about cooling. Instead, worry about water parameters. You know, you don't want that. You don't want the water turning start green, blooming with algae. You want to have extra air stones in the pond because the moment the heat gets uh, so high, the less oxygen is in the water. You don't want to just show up to your pond one day and your fish are gasping at the top because no oxygen. So put a couple extra air stones in there, run them high, run them hard, and don't be afraid to have a running water feature that actually sprays water into the pond. So uh, ice is a bit ludicrous, but if you want to get real fancy and you want to watch your wallet disappear... You can buy yourself a big old fancy aquarium chiller. That's way too much money. You know, the other thing you can do, I mean, reading what he, what they wrote there, they're freezing milk jugs full of ice. And so I think they're just putting the milk jugs, Rob, in there full of ice, which you can just reuse over and over again. But, you know, here's the thing. The top of the water might be 90 degrees. What's the bottom of the water? Put your arm all the way down into the pond, just like a lake. You know, when you're wading in a lake, the top of the water is always warmer. The bottom of the lake is always colder. You know, put your arm all the way down to the bottom of your pond and actually see how cool it is down there. Because down there it might be 10 degrees colder. Uh, but I'll check it. I don't know the depth of your pond. The other thing you can do is also take and put in pond plants. So the additional shade should keep some of the sun from uh, getting in there and heating everything up. And if not, make yourself a, a ledge. Because you would be surprised just putting a object in there to create a shelf in your, in your uh, pond at the bottom creates its own uh, form of cool. Yeah. Like it, it's incredible what you can do. I like your idea too, about, about putting extra air stones in there because air stones coming to the top will dissipate very quickly the heat. It, so you're probably only going to, I don't know what your temperature is at night, but uh, with the extra air stones, that will dissipate some heat. The, the ice jugs are, are still a good idea. If you're really concerned about it, if you have any other issues, you can just always take all your fish out and then give them to me. Just a thought. Hey Robs. Yes. Why couldn't they just make that homemade chiller where they cut into a fridge? Well, the idea is you're keeping the fridge running at all times. So we talked about, I think it was episode 11. It was tips, tricks, and hacks. And get yourself a mini fridge on you know Craigslist for a hundred bucks. 
you cut holes in the side and you, what you do is you take a hundred foot um uh garden hose. Wow. gardening hose thank you adam um <laughs> I'm full on uh, stopping here. You know, I thought you just, I thought you had a stroke. And I, was, I did. I, I had was a stroke. I was just, waiting to see what happened. And it's I was the rapid gonna, weight loss. I was going to call 911 right after I went through his billfold. My but. blood sugar is clearly crashing, guys. I got to have some starburst jelly beans next to me. But anyways, get yourself a 100-foot garden hose, and that acts as a coil, and you pump water through it. It changes the temperature because the longer the water's in the fridge as it goes through and runs through the line, the colder it comes out. So that essentially turns into a chiller. But the idea is that in the summer, you know, even running that fridge, it's going to be running 24 hours a day because you're going to continually pump warm water into that fridge. So it's never really going to kick off if you're doing, doing it right. And that's a lot of expense to have a fridge running 24 hours a day versus just having a fridge working in your home, kicking in and out. You know, the, the only other thing I can come up with off the top of my head is we could send my ex-wife over there. And, and she, she's pretty frigid. Tell her it's a hot tub. Tell her to sit in there. They don't bit. want it to freeze over, Jim. Oh, they don't want to freeze over. Yeah. So the ice queen, there we go. Put her in there. Hashtag Elsa. All right. So next question, we have uh, Peter emailed us in. It says, hey, guys, binge all your shows for the last three days. Uh, top job uh, you guys do. I'm from the UK and really got into sunfish. Most of them are prohibited over here and require a special license. I have managed to obtain black banded sunfish and some banded sunfish on my list is the uh, Everglades pygmy sunfish. Is there any information you could give me on these fish? I'd be extremely grateful. Um, had success um, with black versus the normal banded kind regards, Peter. So we do have, again, the banded sunfish are North American fish. Um, most of the sunfish that we have native in Minnesota are normally like bluegill or like pumpkin seed is how we call them in Minnesota. However, I believe in southern Minnesota, we do have banded sunfish. I've seen them kept in the hobby. They grow about two to three inches, and they're fun. Again, they hold the characteristics of any other uh, cichlid in the tank. They make nests in the sand, a wonderful pet, but they sometimes have muted colors. That's why you don't see a lot of them in the trade. However, the banded one has nice pattern of like light speckles all over. It's almost like a starry night cichlid, but with the you know tans and browns. As far as my recommendations for those fish, keep them cold. Like, there's no reason to have heaters in there ever with any of these uh, sunfish species from North America. It really is the case that I can think of. Um, yeah, keep them cold. If you can, you know, most of these things that you get are acclimated to live food. Take your time. Use a tweezer. Try to hit, have them hit a pellet or have dither with another fish that's hitting pe pellet. The better you can get any of these predator fish off of, you know, like feeder fish is always the best. Otherwise, you know, live black worms, blood worms, they almost hit it without any issue because, again, a lot of these are from the wild species. You can even chop up earthworms and put in there. Sure. Nightcrawlers. You know, we just talked about it the other night when I was over here, Rob's. Uh, one of my friends has got a goldfish tank outside, and he put his bug zapper over the goldfish tank. So every time a, a bug goes in there and gets zapped, it falls in, and they eat the flies or the mosquitoes or whatever falls in there, the, the moths. And so... Uh, these fish are used to eating that also, so you could always swat flies through on there and see if they'll hit those. I mean, it works out really well because you're not going to get so many bugs during the day, but at night, you're going to get a, a big wave in the, right before, like after sunset, and then right in the morning when the bugs are moving. So they're getting fed like twice a day. They'll grow. They'll grow fast. Sunfish act like a cichlid. 
They can have aggressive uh, natures to species that aren't done when they're breeding their territorial, like any other nesting species. I think those are the core things to do. Otherwise, they're extremely hardy fish. They're not commonly kept due to being in native species in America. But again, you being in UK, I can see the interest. It's something that's, you know, a foreign species and be fun to have in your tank. But uh, there, there's not a whole, uh, whole lot of issues I've had with them. They're extremely hardy and keep them cold. Now, the pygmy sunfish, they have an entire uh, library on that. And I'm not going to lie to you. I've only had one, and it wasn't for that long, and it's sold. So these are more of like the black pyg- pygmy sunfish you see uh, in the aquarium trade. They're coming only from Florida. They're quite small. They're nanotank fish. I don't have a ton of experience. I want to get some more, more of these, but I would assume the parameters are the same. But check, because that's at least a documented species in the hobby trade, well-documented. And I know that when you have a school of them together, one male is the one that shows color, is the dominant male, I believe. So you you have any experience with those pygmy sunfish, Jimmy? I have absolutely zero experience with sunfish. When I was a kid, I, I caught a couple off the dock and kept them in my, my mom's aquarium for a little while. And that was before I knew it was illegal to do. But um, I absolutely love them. Uh, here in northern Minnesota, we have a lot of restaurants that have walleye, sunfish, different things like that in aquariums. Uh, so when you go to the restaurant, you sit there eating, and you get to look at all the uh, natural fish swimming around. So there's a lot of people that just absolutely love them. So congratulations on your tank, and uh, keep up the good work. All right, just to double check here to make sure we have no other questions. Sometimes we actually get an email right during the podcast, and we are clear, Jimmy. So Let's uh, unmute Les and uh, join back in the uh, undisclosed location. How you doing, Les? I'm tucked behind a chair, so hopefully the audio is wonderful. That is a beautiful sunset in, uh, you know, Mystery Island over there. It's better than the view of me. If if you insist, I don't know. We we don't get to see you that often. COVID's uh, COVID's mean to us, but good sir. Before we start, you know, how have you been since the last time we, we've talked? Has uh, how's you know, COVID treated you? Um, we're, as far as the cobalt goes, um, we, we are located in, our main office and warehouse is located in South Carolina. Fortunately, we have not been directly affected at all by any of the COVID uh, with any of our <clears throat> staff or employees. So that's a blessing. South Carolina has definitely been one of the states that's uh, troubled. Um, <clears throat> and we're right on the border of North Carolina, which has also not been the best. So we're lucky that way. Um, we sell pet food, so we are an exempt company. So although it has not necessarily directly affected us, obviously the um, the economy, especially in April, everything. Uh, but right now, uh, we have more than uh, we know what to do with, more orders than we can really deal with. Uh, because our entire supply chain, we have stuff all over the U.S. that we get, and we also have stuff from Europe and Asia that we bring in, and everything affected by freight rates, timing, you know, every everywhere has been affected somewhat. Uh, so we have a lot of orders, and our supply chain is trying to catch up. Other than that, um, I have not had a haircut since March, so I got this, so I'm wearing the hat, <laughs> some serious Florida the hair craziness. Oh, I gave away part of my location. Uh, and uh, although Florida is exploding, uh, we are doing our best in the location we're at to hide from social distancing, ordering be on that online. There, so. What's that? You look to be on an empty beach. So I think you're doing it right. Yeah, the the place where we come down here is uh, 
it, it's a uh, definitely a, a, a northern uh, destination. And in the summer, when we come down, there's almost nobody right here because they're all they're all snowbirds. This little section of place we come is the exception to the rule, so it's it's a good thing. Earlier today, I talked to uh, Julie, my salesperson from Seagrass Farms. And over the weekend, they went to Bush Gardens, and she goes, "We had the whole place to ourselves." Because uh, uh, just just heard today now that they're already closing up uh, Disney World in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's already closing it up again on July fifteenth. And I asked her about you know what they expect there in Florida because the state of Florida, they get all their money from the tourists, and there is no tourist down there right now, as 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 you know. That is uh, not the case. Um, with the beach we're on, uh, this was this is the first time we've come here this early. That we came, we got here. We drove down Wednesday, uh, so we 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 didn't get here till late Thursday. We this is the uh, tail end of the Fourth of July weekend, and wow, it was way busy, uh, way yeah. busier than it normally is. Again, right in the little section we're in, it's okay, but um, oh, there's a lot of people. And uh, we're wearing, we need to, uh, we have some N95 masks that uh, some of our suppliers have sent us. I cannot, we're, we're pretty, my family, we're pretty uh, uh, amusement park junkies. We love Disney. We love you. And uh, we're wearing N95 masks when we need to uh, down here. And if you're at a park, oh my God, you're trying to wear a mask in the heat down here. I mean, it's 90 plus degrees and 70 80 percent humidity with heat index of way over afternoon like anytime after 12 o'clock there is i there is no way no way that anybody could actually wear their mask for more than 10 or 15 minutes without pulling it off you're just sweating there's uh in my opinion anyway i would never attend an amusement park right now and i don't as much as the economy needs it I don't see how anybody in their right mind uh, in would open it because nobody in the afternoon is going to obey those mask rules because your face is sweating and it's impossible. It's impossible. We went to another place today, uh, uh, another um, another place here uh, to check it out. We'd never been before. We drove down a few hours and um, nobody was wearing masks. Okay. And we had to walk down this public beach access thing, and we had our N95 masks on, and uh, oh, nobody was wearing masks. We were sweating. Uh, it was it was miserable. Again, and we were talking about um, like how would you ever go World or Universal or Sea World and deal with that? I mean, nobody, 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 nobody. And I feel for all any employees that have to do it on a you're gonna you're dying, and the only way to deal with it is hydrate and to hydrate you have to take the mask off and you're you're right you're gonna have to take a break oh just i feel for anybody that's in the service industry that has to work down here in this heat and you can see why florida's spiking it's just tough to wear the mask all right guys we just now moved uh from outside we're picking up way too much uh noise and we went inside into uh a wind-free environment so welcome back les I'm sorry. I was hoping to share a sunset with you, but didn't work out. Uh, we, we we got to share what we could. So we just left off with uh, talking about um, the COVID masks and you know how it is for business, and especially there in Florida. So we appreciate the update. But let's dive into the heater topic. 
So again, just to give a little preference of uh, the history of heaters. I want to do just the very beginning. And modern aquariums are from essentially started like in 1930, 1950s era. And how heating really was begun in, in those modern square aquariums is metaframe tanks had slight bottoms. So if you wanted to heat your aquarium, you use essentially a Bunsen burner below it right against the slate. And very inconsistent way of heating your tank. It could easily overheat for no reason. You had to monitor it like a hawk. And it just, if you wanted to shut it off, it immediately got cold again. There's no real way to regulate that heat well by doing that. So well, I, I don't, I'm not sure the dates. 1950s, they started coming out with the you know glass immersion heater. And last, you know, give us a little background. You, you told us before that you have some insights on uh, who did it and uh, how. Well, yeah, you guys, uh, again, when you asked me to do this, I don't think you realized the can of worms you opened up with the, the history that I have been blessed with in the aquarium industry. Um, I've worked directly with the uh, inventor of the VisiTherm heaters for more than 20-something years now. So through aquarium systems, and uh, you mentioned Metaframe. When I worked for Marineland, we were purchased by a company, and that company shortly after they purchased us, purchased the Perfecto Group, uh, which was Perfecto and Aquarium Systems at that time. And then those three companies became the aquatic wing of the United Pet Group. And Perfecto had bought Metaframe previous to that. So I've had the luxury of meeting everybody from Metaframe all the way through. So when you talk about all of that, it's, it's a pretty crazy history. Um, but the VisiTherm heater is the number one heater in the world for many. I, I don't imagine anybody's beat it yet. Um, and it was the really the first user-friendly submersible immersion heater, as you mentioned. So Penplax was really credited originally with the first immersion heater, but it wasn't sealed. So it had to have the thermostat and the controlling unit had to be hanging on the edge of the metaframe tank or, you know, depending on the brand you had back in the 70s, uh, hanging outside because that glass tube, which is either back in the day, it was originally glass, but then it became either borosilicate or quartz. So depending on the, the heater manufacturer, you chose one or the other. Uh, so quartz tended to be a little more durable, but borosilicate uh, was pretty close to the durability, but at a fraction of the cost. So you either took one or two different angles with borosilicate or quartz. Once the original glass heaters were discovered that they were too fragile. So there's there's two main two main differences in controlling units or thermostats. And then there's the different sealing methods. There are different extrusions, uh, glass or plastic or titanium. And then there's a few different heating elements. And then within the heating elements, there's a few different ways of diffusing the heat or separating the heating element. So... Where do you want to start? I got too much information for you, for sure. <laughs> too much, for sure. So as far as the history goes, it's, it's a bit of a fog because, again, I'm a younger guy. All the stuff I get is from uh, aquarium books or the old heaters that I get. I still think I have my grandmother's heater from the 60s. It was like a Penplax one. I think she – I think it's glass. I really do. It's super thin, and uh, she had two of them, and it just – the other one shattered for no reason whatsoever. Oh, there was a reason. You drained the tank and you didn't turn it off. That's I mean, there you go. There you go. <laughs> number, one, number one heater failure is user error, and it's super obvious when it happens, is the element is in the bottom part of the heater, 
and then there's a, a buffer zone, and then there's the control unit. And even in the old immersion heaters that were not submersible, if you did not unplug that heater and allow that glass to cool, and you drain the tank halfway down and you expose that element to air, it cracks, and it cracks right at the level of the heating element every time. And I can't tell you, that's our number one glass heater call when at Cobalt or at Marineland or at Tetra. Every heater that I've ever dealt with, I can tell you within not even a second of looking at a picture, whether it's a manufacturer error or whether somebody did a water change without letting the heater cool, it's an absolute easiest thing to see. It's a definite break right at the heating element. And the only other way of look, breaking it that's a heater uh, a user error is where they position the bracket. And if they position the bracket over the top of the heating element, they do a water change, the same thing. It might break a little lower, but it's super easy to tell. It's And uh, um, I'm sorry to everybody that doesn't get a warranty after that fact, but it's um, it's a guaranteed user, user error 90% of the time. Can't fix stupid. You can't. No, I'm pretty sure that uh, we actually didn't even use it. I think it just cracked by sitting in the box because we didn't have it wrapped. Like it was just, it hit something and I was I was good enough at that time. Yeah, oh, yeah. But well, if you if you plugged it in, modern day ETL or UL heaters, uh, if you plug them in and you have them out of the out there, there's a test called the cheesecloth test, and you have to put it the heater on a piece of cheesecloth, plug it in, and it can't catch a cheesecloth on fire. And that's a, that's one of the hardest tests to pass as far as an ETL or UL certification. I didn't know cheesecloth was that volatile. Yes, it's called the cheesecloth test. It's a technical term. Who knew? I'm going to buy some cheesecloth. Yep. Give that a go. Weed out the crappy Japanese off-brand eBay heaters, you know? Yeah, let's let's do some drinking. We'll do that down in your basement, see if we can bring your house down. I mean, I've electrocuted myself enough. I might as well. But going back to the history of heaters. So, again, I really don't know what uh, how this details came about. But right now, I only know of three other different, uh, three total heaters. There's the immersion ones we spoke of. There's the under gravel, like uh, flexible bars that I've seen in the past. And then out of the tank, you know, bottom mat uh, heaters. And this is generally used, I've only seen in like nano aquariums. Outside of those, you know, is there any others that are, are used in a niche uh, space or have been used and no longer used in the past that you know of? Uh, there are some inline heaters that are borderline, whether they're, they're submersion or not, um, but there's some sort of radiating heaters. But in general, what you're, 99% of the heaters out there are immersion. Uh, very few people use cables. Cables are pretty um, popular in Europe in planted aquariums because it keeps the substrate moving. You don't end up with um, getting anoxic zone because you get some circulation within the gravel bed uh, or the soil bed. Um, so that's typically where you see cable cable heaters. Under the mat heaters are basically non-existent. Maybe in the early 90s, there was a few people dabbling with that. But uh, they're they're really not around much at all anymore. Um, there's still some used in reptile aquariums, but or terrariums style. But in the aquatics, I can't tell you the last time I saw an under the tank mat heater. Um, but if you're a hardcore plant guy, uh, there are still some cable systems that are available out there, and they do a pretty good job, especially if you're trying to keep your soil uh, from going uh, anaerobic or anoxic. Um, you'll see those sometimes. Well, I guess the ne next question down the list, besides your list, is you know how did the cobalt get into heaters? We 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 talked before when we were on the podcast, and again, cobalt started your company. You want to do things a little differently, 
and you guys picked your not necessarily favorite, but where you guys think you could fit best in the uh, the aquarium market. Heaters was clearly part of that, correct? Or how did you oh, get yeah. into heaters? Yeah, exactly that. The, there was um, some opportunity with some some heater designs that I knew of that were out in the marketplace that had not reached uh, the U.S. yet, and we partnered with some of those companies to bring those to the U.S. And um, th- there was specific reasons why they were not brought in, uh, mainly brand positioning and worrying about price points. And when we started Cobalt, we wanted to bring good heaters out. And the price falls where it is. If it's a good heater, people will buy it. And uh, that's the mantra we took for it. So our heaters, they're not cheap, uh, the Neotherm specifically, but they are of the highest quality and the most accurate. So going down your list again, by all means, let's just follow that. And then we can do follow-up questions because Clearly, you uh, you have too much information to give us. <laughs> Those were fantastic highlights to hit. I mean, a lot of times we have to like you know prod questions out, but you uh, you're always prepared. Less. I don't know about that, but let's talk. Let's talk casings. Uh, so there's three basic types of case of the heater in an immersion style heater. You either have glass, or you have a. And I'm I'm gonna bolt the next two together. Borosilicate or quartz. And even though they're different, they're basically the same. It comes down to a price point. Um, the durability and whatnot are pretty similar. And then you have plastic. Uh, those are your three main outer casings. I, I don't mean to interrupt. I'm going to keep popping in questions because I've only used like the quartz or the glass or whatever or whatever's offered. It's always like a glass-like material. And as of recently, you know, the last, what, 10 years, I'm seeing this influx, especially like, you know, the, the Amazons of the world, you're seeing this influx of like metal heaters or what they call titanium heaters, even though there's no way that could be that much titanium in those heaters. I'm sorry. And, I forgot titanium. Yep. Yeah. Those, I mean, I'm always leery of them. I've bought quite a few. And if I'm going to get electrocuted by something out of the box, it's going to be one of those <laughs> like nine times out of 10, whatever brand I buy, I'm just, I don't know if it's like the world hates me, but I almost shit my pants from putting that in and getting electrocuted. Well, we don't want you shitting your pants. That's that's no, a bad no, thing. No shitting your pants, but <laughs> is so Rob, if you shit your pants, does that count as a weight loss thing? Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, that's some good shit. <laughs> no shit. No shit. But seriously, is that, that a common thing? Like, is it just a design flaw where if something does ground out, it just hits the outside casing? Is it insulated? Why? Or is it just me? Is it just me? You're a dumbass. Um, ma- mainly it's you. It really doesn't have um, the casing material that really doesn't affect whether you have a stray voltage or and or excess current in the aquarium. So whether it's glass or boilosilicate, I'm sorry, I forgot titanium, uh, plastic or titanium. Those are your main groups. Uh, so um, that doesn't really affect uh, again, stray voltage or current. So what's, what you'll see, and one of the biggest misconceptions with people is they'll have a voltage sensor in their aquarium to detect stray voltage, especially marine guys. Uh, they'll want to know, oh my God, my corals are all dying because there's stray voltage in the tank. Um, stray voltage doesn't really mean anything. It's the current that is the problem. And if a current is what shocks you, and there's uh, V equals IR squared thing, and there's all sorts of formulas and whatnot around it, um, but Current uh, stray voltage really normally isn't a problem, um, and again, the casing normally doesn't affect it. What affects it is the seal 
um, of the casing. So if there's a hole in the casing somewhere, or if there's a leak in the O-ring, or if the resin isn't completely sealed off your heating element or your electronics, whatever, and we'll talk about thermostats in a little bit. If that, any of that uh, is exposed, you can get current into your tank, and that's what gives you the kick. And uh, I know it's hit, I've been hit a number of times in my life. That's probably why I'm so crazy. Uh, I mean, I've been knocked on my butt a couple of times by uh, uh, current, uh, either from a fluorescent light or from a heater. And it, it definitely uh, uh, can hit you. But that's 90, 99% of the time it has nothing to do with the casing. Um, what's dangerous about titanium heaters is if they are correctly sealed and there is an issue, um, they tend to go explosive and th then you have metal going everywhere. And whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, explosive? I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Yeah. Um, if they're titanium heaters, um, it's one of the reasons we don't have them in our portfolio, is they're the most potential danger of any heater. Um, I'm not saying that every titanium heater is dangerous. There are some quality ones out there, but the level of liability that you face with the titanium heater is definitely up there. Um, and in some respects, they're the safest, and in other, sex, the, uh, other aspects, they're the most, li most liability. That is interesting. I've never heard that before. I mean, everybody that we've talked to in the past always talked about titanium heaters and how fantastic they are, and I did not realize they were that explosive. Well, they're just... Um, if they're sealed correctly, there's nowhere to go except out. And um, that if they're sealed correctly, that means a good thing. But if there's a failure, that means it's a bad thing. Um, again, there's a reason we don't have them in our portfolio. The liability aspect is pretty big. So basically, it's it's like a pressure cooker bomb. And I, uh, I don't want to there, – definitely, there's some safe ones out there. It's just not something – I don't want to talk too bad about it because some of my good friends <laughs> in the industry have them. It's just not something – it's not a road that I would – I would go down as a manufacturer. I'm looking at my titanium heater over my sump, and this thing, like this is my my third one I got in a row. They're the first two electrocuted me. This one electrocuted me the least, and I just gave up. I'm like, I'm not going to buy any more. I'm just going to put a you know a titanium uh, grounding rod in there and, and and leave it and figure out just like spend real money on a heater. So <laughs> that, being that, a again, that has nothing to do with the casing. That has to do with and it's a good it's a good and bad thing. It's a good thing that you're getting shocked because the heater isn't sealed, so that means it's not going to blow up on you. Um, but the bad thing is that it's letting water in, and you're getting straight current into the aquarium, and you're grounding yourself and knocking your, you know, getting knocked. So, so I have a good question. I mean, earlier you talked about the plastic casing, and I've seen that on a couple occasions. Are they as efficient, the plastic casing, as the glass casing? Uh, they're in some cases they're more efficient. So we have a higher, um, and when I say more, you're talking 10% at the most. Um, it's a, uh, we use in, uh, in the old days at aquarium systems, uh, when, when I was there, we use, it's a, they're all using glass, um, polymer plastic. So it's a glass filled plastic and that you can get higher heat transfer out of them. So you get a higher gallon to, um, watt ratio out of them. So Yes, they can be more efficient than glass. And it mainly, it's not necessarily the casing that's the, that is what's causing that. It's the way the heating element is dealt with inside the casing. Well, I just thought it was fantastic when, when I saw, saw the plastic casing. I've actually had heaters laying on the ground and stepped on them barefoot and broke them. 
and I thought, well, this one probably could take a little more more of a beating. But um, why hasn't the the glass ones come with the uh, you know like they have safety glass in car windshields and whatnot? Is there anything like that that is in the uh, future that you've seen or heard about? Well, safety glass is tempered. Yep. Um, so if you have a tempered glass heater, the chances of it cracking are a higher. Um, so you actually don't want that because you want a annealed glass uh, that's got a little more rigidity to it. Um, if there's any sort of potential failure point, a tempered is going to immediately crack and then splinter all throughout the heater. So it's actually a negative in the heater world. Oh, okay. I never even would have thought of that. That is uh, pretty incredible that for all these years I've thought about it would, if they had better glass, tougher glass, it would just be a lot better because I, I uh, have bought probably literally a thousand heaters in my lifetime and I've never really Thank been you. <laughs> and I've never really been impressed by any of them to be honest but I've never owned a cobalt heater well the the big the big thing and, and the, the three different types of glass again that are predominant there's regular glass which is pretty much non-existent now unless you're buying some super 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 cheap import known brand name off of eBay or whatever um, basically nobody's using just straight glass anymore um, borosilicate or quartz. Those are your three different glasses. And borosilicate and quartz are there's they're pretty comparable. Like I said, there's maybe a ten percent difference, but there's a big price concession between borosilicate and quartz. I'm but, sorry um, if I'm chuckling. I, I just saw there's a bunch of memes that they put in some of the channels here, and they're like modern problems, modern solutions, titanium heaters, and they show like a a, a landmine <laughs> in the ocean. I didn't mean to blow up titanium heaters, but. Oh, blow up, blow up, blow up. So we have a question. From, too much uh, rum punch. Too much rum punch. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the old, uh, the old movie Stripes? Oh, yeah. And, and they, uh, they say, to, say to the crew, so am I to understand that you guys perform basic training on your own? And they went, yes, sir. And they go, what happened to your... That is not what they said. You got to get your quotes right. That's a fact, Jack. That's a fact, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to your sergeant? Blown up, sir. <laughs> exactly. So we got a question from one of the listeners. How do cable heaters work? Apparently, some of the listeners didn't even know they existed. So just a, a quick jaunt on that one. Um, they're, a, they're basically a glass heater that's not wound into a tube, but run through a cable system that you then wrap uh, or not wrap i'm sorry put in a like a serpentine um pattern underneath your substrate between your glass and your substrate so that it will evenly heat the entire bottom of the aquarium you won't get as many hot spots but it will create mm -hmm. a uplift of heat which creates a circulation through your soil bed so again a lot of a lot of plant people in europe the really really big heavy plant users in europe love the cable heaters because it creates a creates a cycle through their aquarium and they don't get anoxic or anaerobic areas in their in their soil but they can have a thicker soil bed with laterite and all that to have a more stable um, soil bed and better plants long term with that basically that's kind of like how some people run like petg tubing in their uh in their garage floors and run water through it right Yep. Yep. Very similar. Exactly. It's just, uh, in this case, it's, it's just a giant resistor. So it's not water. It's the cable. The cable is, um, basically your heating element. I, we haven't gotten into this yet, but your heating element is basically, uh, it's called nichrome, nickel chromium, 
but the, the, the techie term is nichrome wire. So basically it's nichrome wire that's plastic coated or some, some sort of coating, normally it's plastic coated, that you then, rather than having 100 feet of it in a little tube, you have 100 feet of it running up and down, up and down, up and down in the bottom of your aquarium. And if you're not watching me, I'm doing the up and down, up and down, up and down. My family always teases me because I talk with my hands. You know, the other thing too, with the cable heaters, with a warmer substrate, do you not get better plant growth? Yeah, in theory. Yeah, that's why a lot of the big plant people like uh, in Europe like them. Uh, they can have a deeper substrate base. They can really layer the laterite and, and the different gravel bed, you know, gravel, ladder, uh, gravel, clay, laterite, soil, laterite, whatever. Whatever you, you guys are, or there's many plant people out here that know more about that than I do. Uh, it's not my specialty, but I know you want to layer it. In The deeper it is, the more nutrients you can have and the less you have to supplement and you don't necessarily have to use as much co2 and there's all sorts of in the ins and outs and benefits to it uh if you want to go through the trouble of using it but you then end up with a cable running down to the bottom of your aquarium um you know like like an airline but it's an electrical cable and then you've got this giant cable all the way through it which ends up being potentially a lot of fail points anytime that you're rapid you know going back and forth with it any one of those pinch points can result in a spot where the plastic may not um, like it and crack earlier than in other spots and ends up with issues like Rob's has with the getting shocked. So th there's lots of pitfalls to it if you're not very diligent about how you install it. There are definitely some high-end plant guys that love them. Yeah, the substrate heaters you can still find here and there. I mean, it's, it's hard to find like a posting on Amazon form anymore. But they're, they're still here and there. And I know only a handful of people that have ever used them. And they're they're short term. Essentially, how I've seen them used in the past is one and done. If you put it in an aquarium, don't touch them. The moment you touch them for the second time after they've been in your aquarium for any you know normal length of time, they'll start cracking and immediately you don't even want to risk it. Like Unless you like, uh, like getting electrocuted, it's a one-use deal. It's not one of those things where... You want to, you know, keep it running for years or swap it between aquariums. It's use it once, use it a long time, and then just get a new one. And not yeah, as long it. as you don't touch it, they're normally all right. But the minute you start fiddling with it, you're going to crack them. So again, especially when you're spending, you know, fifty to even a hundred dollars on these things because they're hard to find. It's not necessarily my favorite, but um, by all means, let's continue with. Uh, you, you left off. We interrupted you so rudely. And you were talking about casings, and I think we got uh, through that plastic is better by ten percent. Uh, it, it's a better heat. It's a better heat dispersion um, if they're using a glass-filled plastic blend in injection molding. Um, you can get a higher heat transfer, so it's it's a different technology. Um, is it better or not? It, you can get higher heat tr ratio transfer ratio for sure. Um, I like it better than glass because it's a lot more forgiving. Um, if you, if you have a quality heater, um, plastic heater that, um, it won't crack if you do not unplug it, uh, when you're doing a water change, it should, uh, last through your human error or user error when you are doing your water change. Uh, it ha does have a lot better thermal re uh, resilience, uh, than a glass or borosilicate heater. So what was next on your list that you wanted to, uh. Well, we talked about casings um, a little bit early on. We talked about the, kind of the history of it, um, the case, the Penplax and Hagen heaters back in the day where you had the white cotton at the top of the heater and they had to be, 
you know, the top had to be out of the aquarium. Um, the next generation was the Visitherm, which was the submersible heater. And basically what they did is they took that glass tube and they shoved a plug with some O-rings on it into the end of it so you could put it down underwater. And so from there, uh, that really, that's where the submersible heaters evolved from is basically putting O-rings on a plug like a bottle of wine cork, similar, and being able mm -hmm. to submerge them. So all of them still use the same style thermostat at that point. And, but you did, you have the ability to not worry about getting water into them to some extent. And then from the 1980s, when that was developed all the way through now, um, the designs are just evolving to try to still improve on that O-ring design, whether it's molded into the plug, whether it's an extra O-ring, whether it's two or three different levels of O-rings or, or layers within the plug that goes in to try to increase the ability to keep water out of that heater when it's submerged. What is it you were saying about uh, heating elements? Uh, so so one, once you, even the basic ones back in, you know, the 60s and 70s when they were first developed, they'll, they're all based on uh, nichrome wire, so nickel chromium wire. And if you look in any heater that's not painted, um, you can see the coils of silver wire that's inside of them. It almost looks like a spring. That is a single loop of wire it can be actually up to 70 feet long if you unravel it all the way. That's coiled, and they coil down and up, down and up, down and up, down and up. And 90% of the heaters that we have in the U.S., probably 60 to 70% of the heaters worldwide, are all made out of uh, nichrome wire heating elements. There is another style called PTC that's pretty popular in Asia. Uh, caught on a little bit in Europe. Uh, it has uh, some really good potential um, but only in freshwater. It's very corrosive in saltwater, so you don't see it really much here because um, nobody wants to take the risk of um, UL liability or ETL liability of a PTC heater being accidentally put into a saltwater and having somebody sue them. So you don't see it much here, but you see it a lot in Asia. Uh, but nichrome wire, again, is by far and away the most popular heating element inside of it. And again, if you take one of the older or any style glass heater, and that's not uh, filled with something, uh, whether it's sand or um, a really solid uh, tube, ceramic tube, you can shake it and you can hear those, that wire, those springs basically uh, shaking around inside the heater. So is it safe to run a heater when those uh, wires are, are shaking at the bottom after uh, some point uh, of use? Uh, unless they're broken, yes, they're, they're fine. Um, now, sometimes if you get, this is where the ceiling comes into effect. Basically, the quality of any heater is, if it's a submersible heater, is a seal. If any water gets in there, it can actually rust or, you know, corrode the nichrome wire. And instead of being a spring, it might jump five or six loops together. And then you get a direct current. And that basically, that spring's a giant resistor. And so you're trying to spread that resistance across as much wire as you can to get a nice even heat distribution throughout the column of the tube. And if you get any sort of jump or corrosion where you're skipping over it, uh, you'll get hot spots, and those hot spots are a problem. And how we mitigate those hot spots is how, and to mitigate the chances of that corrosion is by how you separate those coils. And you separate those coils by either um, some sort of ceramic uh, core, and the Visitherms were the most famous one 
for a uh, a solid ceramic core that if you looked at it from the top down almost looked like a starfish and in between each blade of the starfish was it a coil and the coil will go down the length of the tube wrap around the bottom of the starfish and then come up the next vein of the starfish go over the top of the leg and then back down and around all the way around so you would have each coil separated from each other by a vein of ceramic and that ceramic did really wonders in that it acted not only as a separation of the coils but it also acts as a heat sink so when the coils initially heat up they don't necessarily radiate a ton of heat out up to the glass tube they heat up the ceramic core and so instead of getting if um, if you can see me, I'm going to do a graph here. We got a graph. Instead of getting an external temperature on the glass, it goes up immediately when the heater comes on. You get a gradual kind of curve that comes up because a lot of that heat is being sucked in by the ceramic core. And once the ceramic core heats up, then the heater starts heating up. The external glass heats up. And then when the heater shuts off, it doesn't immediately plummet again because the ceramic core is retaining heat. And then that ceramic core dissipates it. So you get a nice bell curve of heat distribution, of heating it up and then cooling it down. And that really helps the longevity of the glass borosilicate or quartz. In the case of the Visitherm, it's quartz. In the case of uh, cobalt's acutherms, it's borosilicate. Um, I think Tetra is borosilicate. Um, uh, I don't remember off the top of my head what Hagen is. Uh, but you can see it. almost every heater calls it out now, what the material it is. But it will help that bell curve if it's ceramic core. The, the cheaper version of that, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop. Any questions about ceramic core or nichrome elements? Because I'll just keep rambling. <laughs> well, I was wondering, why doesn't anybody, have they tried other materials besides a ceramic core? Like you were saying that some of them had sand and stuff in it. Yeah, Is so that the, literally the best material or could you put like gravel in it or something? Uh, ceramic's really good. Um, the next version is what's called mica. And mica almost looks, looks like a fiberboard. And you'll see it, it looks um, it looks like fiber. I don't know, fiberboard. I don't know how else to describe it. There's a bunch of fibers. It looks like fibrous metallic cardboard. And if you look at a cheaper heater, you can see that you'll see these veins of mica. And mica doesn't have the insulating properties that a ceramic core does. It will just reflect the heat. So you end up with this uh, those spikes in the heat profile on the glass. I was just wondering, isn't mica the same stuff that they make countertops out of sometimes? Similar, yeah. Yeah, it's the same material, but it's 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 uh, woven together. Countertops are more formed. But yes, it's a heat, the reason they use it in countertops is because it's heat resistant. In case you put a pot on it, it's not going to crack or do anything. But it's the same material, but it's different construction. So the other thing that there's a there's a type of sand and sitting here right now we don't use it and it's been nine years since i had dealt with it i don't remember the technical term for the sand but you'll see some that are sand filled and that is designed to keep the nichrome wire uh, separated so you don't get you, you reduce the chance of corrosion and try to dissipate the heat but it doesn't have the same heat sink as ceramic so in my opinion in a glass scenario the best Thing to use as a ceramic core it's the most expensive and it's the hardest to do um, from a, so you increase in the labor cost but it's the it's the most reliable and it gives you the best um, 
heat dispersion, both on the front end and the back end. Sand would yeah. be second, but it almost dampens it to some extent and doesn't have the same heat capacity. So it won't it won't uh, give you the nice bell curve. It just keeps it from getting super hot. Um, and then mica is a is the lowest of the alternatives, but will keep the corrosion to and the and the shorting potential to a minimum. While we're on the subject of wear and tear on heaters, you know, let's talk about some of the best practices to maintain your heater and run it and positioning in the tank. You know, we started the some of the podcast notes as you know why heaters suck, and frankly, I mean, besides the point that we're just taking a heating element. And expecting that to kick on and off for years on end in a tank and expect it to do well is crazy on us, number one. And the technology that we've uh, done, I'm looking at a heater that's been in my, uh, I've used in my care for eight years. That's incredible. To me, that just having a heating element sitting in my tank, reliably kicking on and off to to within a, what, three degree um, measure is a feat of its own. It's a visitor. Is it? Yes, I'm looking at it right now. It's a <laughs> Yeah, I didn't even know what it was. I got it for free. It's a good heater. The, the, the people that make it are all good, or used to make it are all good. It's a factory in, in Italy. Why do heaters suck? I'm going to step on my soapbox right now and tell you why heaters suck. Heaters suck because sometime, a long time ago, the manufacturers, unbeknownst to themselves at the time, decided to make the most technology difficult thing to make a commodity. A handful of friends just made one. I'm Uh-oh. hearing somebody's mic. I am hearing somebody's mic. Oh, it was Joe's shrimp shack. Oh, oh, what a, what a wonderful thing, Joe. How you doing? Joe, what's up, Joe? I, I'm trying to mute it and stuff like this, so I just I, I no, no. get it too loud. Is that Perfect Les? live podcast. Up, Welcome, Joe. Is that Les? What's up, Joe? How you doing, bud? Hey, buddy. How you doing? Doing good. I know Joe. He's a good guy. I try. All right, Joe, you got to tell me where to buy shrimp and what promo code to use, and then I'll mute you. <laughs> Aquarium guys, come on, got to do it. <laughs> go to joeshrimpshack.com. No, thanks again, Joe. I appreciate it. That's, that's All right, now I go do. back to your tangent. Sorry, Les. All right, so soapbox. Why do heaters suck? Decades ago, the manufacturers somehow got into this competition and lowered the price point. And the most technology technological challenging thing to make is put a giant resistor into a corrosive environment and heat your aquarium. Basically, you guys, especially up north, there's no reason, I'm sorry, there's no reason in the world you guys should be keeping tropical fish in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Right? <laughs> hey! Right? And, then, and, then, and then you'll spend, uh, you know, now that we got Joe kind of chimed in, you muted him now, but right. Joe's out there selling shrimp for what? $70 for a freaking shrimp that's this big. But if you try to tell somebody to pay 50 bucks for a heater, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm not paying $50 for a heater. And for whatever reason, that's the only piece of equipment in the aquarium industry that everybody thinks should be cheap. And it is a challenge to make. And for whatever reason, we as manufacturers in the industry have agreed to letting the consumers dictate the price point on this stuff and try to make them at the lowest common denominator rather than making them a life support critical function and safe and reliable. And um, I have tried my best over my 20 something years of manufacturer to get around that because it's not so. It's not so that anybody would spend 
you know, you go buy a Starfire aquarium with the greatest, clearest glass ever and pay $500 for a, a four-foot tank. But if I ask you to pay $45 instead of $30 for a heater, you have a conniption. I mean, so yeah. You, off my soapbox. <laughs> That's what you – know. I'm I'm blown away. Like I just said, I gave the you know, analogy of eight years. The idea that we're we're doing that is crazy, and that we've been so successful, and that people complain. But you know, the, the the complaints that I get are what I keep finding out. Like you do the research, you get these uh, claims in. People say, "Hey, my heater burnt out." You look at it and go, "Nope, that's that's user error. I'm not covering that." Well, of course, because you know symptomatically how to treat these uh, heaters. You can see that oh, it has a crack in it, or you know, the seal's gone. You were explaining to us how you, you recognize that right away. Well, you know, we're not this, we're not uh, far off. I mean, we're, we're, we see people's heaters. They, they message us in our Discord. And every time we hear, oh, my heater sucks. Well, I look at it and like, yeah, you broke it, dude. Or your cat bit the cord or it's literally 40 years old and somehow it burnt out and now it sucks. Filters run last time and you were not complaining about it. But what are some so, things we can do? to make our heaters last? And what are some of the easiest mistakes you see everybody doing, novice or expert? Everybody, everybody, including me, I've done it dozens of times. You don't unplug your heater when you're doing a water change and you drain the water down and you crack your heater. That The number one thing to do is the second you're doing a water change, before you do anything, you unplug the heater. Unplug your heater before you start a water change. You do that, your heater will last forever. Now, your fish won't last that long unless you for, in, until you plug it back in after you do your water change, which I've also done dozens of times where I've unplugged it, done the water change, and then like three days later, everybody's covered in ick, and I'm like, why is everybody sick? And then I check the temperature, and it's 68 degrees because I didn't plug the heater back in. So if you have anything, some sort of reminder and – uh, I actually made a um, a suction cup thing uh, back in the day where it said heater plugged in, heater you know on off, and I would have it plug up on the suction cup onto the tank, up, and then when I would go to do a water change, I would turn it upside down, I would unplug it, I do my water change, and then if it was still upside down when I did my water change, then I knew I had to plug it back in, and I would put it back on. And something similar like that with a magnet or a suction cup, something to let you know whether your heater's plugged in or not, unplug it before you do a water change. When you're done with your water change, plug it back in. You're going to be great. Um, if you're a sump user, do not, for the love of God, put your heater in the sump. Do Why is not that? put it because you will break it. No, I won't. Whoa, whoa, come um, on. <laughs> Last, last, I'm calling BS on this. We actually had to put it in our warranty that we do not cover sump heaters in a sump because people say, oh, I have an ATO, I'm fine. Well, when your ATO fails, your sump runs dry and you crack your heater. Guaranteed every time. All right, so so help me out with this. I'm going to pick this through. I have a sump system. I have nine tanks running through it. It's a recirculating system. And I've set it up so that my pump is on a shelf. So... In an emergency, or well, in, you're, 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 if you have it on a shelf and you're, you have a designated reservoir that the heater's not going to be exposed, you're right. the exception. You're the exception to the rule. Golf clap, good job. Oh, golf clap! Yeah, <laughs> in your face. <laughs> but most most people don't do that, and they put it on the base of their sump. They have their pump down on the bottom of their the, the sump, 
and the pump will run that thing down to a half an inch and the heater is exposed and it'll crack every time i've done it i'm not i'm i'm definitely done it everybody's done it i've done it twice yep. once because i my wife moved the cord and it yeah, moved the heater above the pump yeah throw tenacity under the bus and the yeah. first time course, so I did it wrong. yeah why are yeah, you so, so mean to her so I'm, I'm gonna divulge something that i've never done publicly right now but i've actually done it at a trade show oh, oh. <laughs> and you got no crap from nobody did you nobody dared yeah but i blame I'm somebody gonna, else i'm pretty sure I, i'm hey, gonna give you a million dollar i'm gonna give you a million dollar idea right now and, and you can run with it because i'm too lazy to do anything with it and too stupid so one of my friends just recently came by and they're they're driving this mercedes-benz camper and they were going into fargo to get a new windshield put on because the sensors on the windshield come on when it's raining so you don't have to reach over there and turn on the button so why can't we put a sensor on a heater that will once it's dry will turn itself off they have that my titanium guy that shocks me has an error thing because i tested it at once because i tested it because i was just moving it in the 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 sump right i pulled it out it hit like e1 when it uh, lifted out of the water and did not come back on until it was uh, submerged and i had to restart it i had to pull, pull the plug and plug it back in it does it every time it gets dry at a certain spot on the heater is so, that normal for heaters or is that just like my luck what is normal to have a system like that or yeah, like it works that you see these or is just mine a fluke is there a sensor on these things um there there are some that are out there that have sensors but they're typically heaters that have the ptc element that i talked about earlier that's not really reliable in uh saltwater scenarios and so it, even and most of those sensors have some sort of ground they're, they're a grounding thing right if they're not seeing current um and if they corrode at all then they fail um, so you have not seen them in the U.S. market typically. The heater that you have, Rob's, is probably not a UL certified heater with that sensor in it. Uh, so because you can't get the UL certification with those. Uh, Thank you. Because, because they're not necessarily reliable. Um, now, are, are, they out, are they out there? Absolutely. There's a lot of them out there in the world. Uh, again, most of them have to do with PTC element heaters that are out there. And they, um, they work really well on soft water freshwater tanks but anytime you start getting any uh tdc especially with any hard water like uh, or end up in salt water scenarios you end up starting having corrosion problems and then they those sensors fail um so it's uh there isn't that magic bullet out there yet that anybody's developed uh for that sensor but that would be the ideal um i've seen some prototypes back in the day it's been years but that actually had float switches and all sorts of things where you put a float switch down, you know, 30% down your aquarium. And when it, when it drops, it'll shut off, but nothing that's ever proved consumer viable has really come to pass yet. So you're telling me I'm still going to pay $70 for a good heater, but I'm still going to blow it up myself. Um, if, you, if you choose a plastic heater or a, a well-made titanium heater, um, you shouldn't blow it up. Um, cheaper titanium heaters or a cheap plastic heater have that potential, but a, a quality titanium or a quality, because uh, I don't want to blow up, I don't want to talk bad about titanium heaters overall. There are definitely some ones out there that are quality, but there's some out there that are not, um, just like everything. Um, but the uh, good quality titanium or, or good quality 
classic heater should resist the user error that we're talking about. If you drain it down, they will shut off depending on the thermistor. Uh, the, the temperature sensors inside a heater are called a thermistor. And on um, the Neotherm, for instance, there's five in each one. So there's five different places where it's re um, recognizing the temperature. And but once it drops below a certain point and certain things hit certain temperatures, it'll shut the heater off. And so you before it will uh, have any issue with any sort of uh, cracking. Um, so there are some titanium heaters out there, and there are, well, I know the Neotherm for sure will do that. And it will give you that buffer as a as a user, so you don't crack them. Okay, so what about placement in the tank? So I've always been a firm believer that you need to be where the flow is. So if there's you know a hang in the back filter, if you have the canister filter pointing in a certain direction, or if you if you have a power head moving water in your tank, you need the flow to match the heater wherever it's at. But if you don't have an obvious place to put it, in my opinion, I've always put it horizontally somewhere in the in the tank at least a little bit lower that way you're spreading the heat and not just overwhelming the filaments or any other thermostat mechanism on whatever heater you have is that correct it depends on the rating of the heater and submersion rating um, if it is rated for 36 inches or higher you can definitely put it horizontal and that's a good thing for the exact same reasons that you mentioned you get a nice even heat across the heating element and it's going to create a convection current up and down, up the back of the uh, the aquarium and roll the aquarium a little more than it would um, if you can. You really don't want to put it near an airstone. Um, airstones tend to have a negative effect, even if you get a lot of flow. Um, but flow is a good thing around a heater in general. Um, so you, the 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 worst case is if you look at a thermal camera, which we've done in the past, is if you don't have a lot of flow, you end up with the cone of hot, and then it dissipates out over time over the aquarium. So you end up with, if you're checking the temperature on say a four foot tank and you don't have a lot of flow and you have the heater on the left back left corner, on the front right corner, you're gonna see a dr more dramatic temperature fluctuation and it's not gonna be as warm and it's gonna be hotter over here. And it's gonna be a longer dwell curve. So your temperature curve is gonna be much more elongated and down than you would on the right next to the so flow is going to keep a more homogeneous mix. It's going to keep your entire tank at a more consistent temperature. Your heater is going to have to work less. Um, so that's a good thing. And horizontal, as long as you have a good IP rating on the heater that, that can handle the depth, horizontal is a good thing. But you don't want to put it touching the gravel because anytime you're touching a surface with those heaters, you're creating a, a point where you're not getting even heat distribution and you're potentially going to crack it. I'm not sure if he's talking smack, but he's giggling. Oh, of course. You know, Joe's going <laughs> to Joe's gonna come visit us, talk, uh, talk a little crap. So, again, if you guys want to listen and join these uh, podcasts live, go to AquariumGuysPodcast.com. The bottom of the website, you'll find our link to Discord. Discord is our place where we actually record these podcasts. Uh, Mondays at 7 Central is when we try to aim to do these podcasts each week. And, you know, come join the debauchery. We have a bunch of people that are, you know, typing memes. Joe joined us to say hi, and again, he's typing in the chat. That's how we do questions live. So come join the fun, guys. You're welcome uh, Welcome to it. But just on the point of using air stones on heaters. So I have a particular issue, and I've seen uh, a couple, like a handful of other people. I have an extremely densely planted tank. I have a 125 tall, and I have no space for a heater that won't just burn plants. So what I did is something I shouldn't do, shame on Rob's, is take my heater, 
put it in the corner and then make sure it has a rotating flow behind my plants, like a slow flow. And then just to make sure that, that my heater up and down is getting the correct flow and not just burning the plants next to it, I put a very slow flow stone next to it to one, you know, bounce the leaves away from the heater and two, make sure there's a little bit of slow flow going up on that vertical heater. You, you said that's not a good thing to do, correct? Air in general is not a good thing to do at a specific level, uh, depending on exactly where the air is up against the heater and the level of flow. You can set it up so that it will work um, for, the, but you're also the guy who built his pump up on a ledge and put his heater below the pump. So you're the exception to the rule. So you may have your individual situation may be fine. Um, but as a general rule, I would not get on any podcast with thousands of listeners and say, use an air stone around your heater. Um, can it be done? Yes. Um, you know, evil can evil can jump the Grand Canyon, but not everybody with a dirt bike should try it. Can you clip that out? Lance from Cobalt Quad said I could put an air stone <laughs> up my heater and I can refine. So how often does a heater actually fail on its own? Every time. I know. I, I, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a ridiculous question. Uh, how, like, technically, every time a heater fails, it's on its own. So, well, uh, to be more specific on Jimmy's question, <laughs> <know>. in the <laughs> warranty range, like how often does that happen with most manufacturers that are decent? Never. That's uh, how they keep selling them. No. Uh, we, um, even at my old job, um, uh, legitimate claims were uh, less than 3%. That's incredible. Pumps don't get that. Uh, well, MJ pumps are even less than that. So some, uh, depending on, every product's a little bit different. Any From any manufacturer, you're shooting for a five to six or less. Uh, a three is fantastic. Less than one is outstanding. A bunch of research on this, you know, in my profession to try to see what other manufacturer norms are. And that, that that's across all manufacturing. Because no matter whether you're making uh, an aquarium pump or whether you're making a dishwasher, um, there's just... There's human error involved. Uh, I, I personally had a I had a dishwasher catch on fire in my house. I haven't had a heater do that, but I've had a dishwasher do that, and I've had to go back to KitchenAid and try to get them to you know warranty it. And um, you know, at some point, if somebody shows up to work at a manufacturing line and they just are feeling down in the dumps for that day, whether it's COVID or whether it's uh, tequila. You know, somebody shows up one day and doesn't do something exactly right and on that production line. You end up with one or two heaters or one or two products, whether it's a, a tire or whether it's a, you know, on a car, whether it's a, you know, dishwasher or an aquarium product. You have that human error that something is could potentially happen that is not going to meet your spec. And it, they'll, you're not going to catch them all. Um, and the ultimate field test is always a consumer. So there's always some level of failure that you're going to see just because of the human element. Now, I've had some beginners message me. And with this podcast, we accommodate to beginners as well as, you know, advanced aquarists. And I just want to point out some of the most ridiculous places I've seen heaters. Do not do any of these. Don't put them in your filter, if, especially hang on the back filters. You may have a small heater don't put it in there that's plastic i can't explain how bad that would be don't do that don't you know uh put it towards the surface even though you have direct water flow onto it just like the stump issue if you're going to evaporate water you'll burn out your pump and cause a grounding issue 
um, you know, don't put your submersion heaters that are not meant to go underground anywhere underneath your substrate. In fact, keep it away from any objects if you can so help it in your aquarium. That's that, probably one of the biggest issues with people, the beginners, is putting their heater under under the gravel, for sure. Don't put your heaters in decorations. Yep. And I think one of the stupidest ones that beginner aquarists do, <laughs> uh, don't zip tie your heaters together. Like if you have a hundred and some odd gallon aquarium and you have a heater that says it has 50 gallons, don't put two heaters together with a zip tie. Don't lick windows, you know, <laughs> don't uh, use a little bit of common sense. You're putting electricity with a thin insulator inside water. All right. Don't be dumb. And, and Rob's don't run the microwave with the door open. Right. Right. Hey, Rob's, uh, thank you for that. I appreciate that. You're, you're welcome. I mean, <laughs> besides the infamous thing that we've all heard about, this is it's it's a common thing. You see it on threads. You see the people using multiple heaters in the same aquarium. Not saying you can't use multiple heaters. There are scenarios where to use multiple heaters, but make sure you're spacing them. Actually, on a larger tanks, I recommend using multiple heaters. Yeah, if um, you have a long, he's making sales left and right here. If you have a long six foot, yes, yeah, sales. <laughs> he's making sales. Uh, if you have a long six foot tank. You know, instead of doing one 300 heat, uh, 300 watt heater, it's probably going to be cheaper for you to run two heaters, and it's going to do a better job if you don't have power heads pushing a mass circulation around that tank. So the, the other thing is, is that if a heater, if if a heater fails, whether it's by the manufacturer, whether it's by age, or whether it's by user, if one of the heater fails, you still have another one or two heaters functioning, and whether it fails on or off. Sometimes they'll fail on, we haven't talked about thermostats yet on how that happens, but if they fail on a smaller wattage heater, if, you, if you're if you sizing a heater correctly to your aquarium, it's not going to be able to physically overheat your tank. Uh, the American mentality of too much horsepower is why we have heaters fail and cook tanks. If you size it correctly or you undersize it and use multiple, you're, you're not going to have that too hot or too cold ever, and you're going to be able to capture any mistakes. So that's why I always recommend using multiple. So let's talk just a little bit about why heaters, or not why heaters fail, but when they fail. We've talked about electrocution. Electrocution is so common for the stuff I, I do because apparently I'm a dipshit and shit my pants. So when you get a no, new heater. Nobody is arguing that point at all. Yeah. I'm going on. You, you, you <laughs> pause. You pause. All right. When you get a new heater, especially when you're ordering from stupid places like wish.com, like Rob's is always doing, because I have this podcast I want to do in the future, and that's trying to get all my aquarium products. I want to build an entire aquarium from Wish.com and see how bad it was in all my struggle. That's going to be a podcast. The insurance company, after you burn your house down, the insurance company can listen to this podcast and go, yeah, we're not covering you. 100%. Failed. Failed. So if you're going to get a, a heater, especially one that you don't trust, use heaters. Find easier, accurate ways to test them. Use you know voltage meters, see what you're getting in the tank. Don't just be like me, plug it in and stick your hand in there and see what happens, right? Um, Again, there's a, there's a difference between voltage and current. Right. Voltage won't shock you, current will. Exactly. So know how to use your voltage meters. There's plenty <laughs> of different settings. Do some Googling before this, but don't just stick your tongue in there. Uh, next is failures that it just doesn't, heaters don't just simply shut off. Some can just, the thermostat fails, and guess what? They just burn in your tank. And suddenly you'll get home and you'll smell something. You'll look over and your discus tank is either um, boiling or freezing. 
Uh, either way, having that backup heater helps and a smaller heater. That's the, what you're uh, describing. My worst scenario that I had was I got some uh, rare um, rainbow species. I actually traveled. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Gary Lang's work. And I traveled all uh, out of state to get rainbows, brought them back home. Thank God I separated them in two tanks. But immediately I had an old heater. And the next day, again, I came in there and it was probably, what, 100 degrees in that tank. Just it was literally fizzling in the water for some reason. So it was a 10-gallon tank that had a 300-watt heater in it, right? More than likely. It was, a, it was probably a 20 and it was a hefty boy. Yeah. So that's the American mentality or the North American mentality of too much of more horsepower is better. And in actuality, in the heaters, if you size them correctly, per the manufacturer's instructions, it will be physically impossible for that heater to overheat your tank to that degree. And that was a dumb mistake. I didn't have a sticker. I didn't know the wattage of the heater. Do your homework. Don't risk stuff like that. I I do. I do have one, one little bit of advice that, that I have learned. Uh, like, like every Aquarius, I've got a box with 25 heaters from 30 different manufacturers. And um, so at, at the end of the day, you're wondering which ones work, you know? And so like a dumbass, I take it, I hold on to them, and I plug them into the wall. And then once I burn my fingerprints off, <laughs> I know that one works. So my son was over one day watching this, laughing his head off. And he goes, you know, you've got that $30. Uh, yep. <laughs> no, well, the ohmmeter is actually uh, one of the uh, laser, laser thermometers. Laser thermometer. Yeah, and he said, "Why don't you just uh, lay them here and turn them on, and and use that laser thermometer to see if see if they're heating up or not." And so I did, and I only burnt two spots on my countertop. <laughs> <laughs> so I would recommend that. So um, this has been one of the things that uh, I don't know we may do eventually, but I've never done is if you go onto YouTube which I know all of you guys go on YouTube, right? And you want to know whether your heater works or not. Uh, there's nobody, to my knowledge, that's done this video, which is how to use a multimeter to see if your heater works so you don't burn your fingerprints or your counter or your cheesecloth or your tank. Um, <laughs> if, you Google, if you Google how to check a water heater electric heating element, there are tons of videos on how to use an ohm meter to simply put it on the probe and check it to see if it will work. Um, and in essence, um, a water heater, electric water heater uh, for your home is basically the same as what we do in aquariums, just on a larger, more industrial scale than what we use in aquariums. Now, I'm not saying go out and use a water heater, uh, a general water heater for that, because it's different technology and there's a lot of corrosion of possibilities and whatnot. But from testing standpoint, if you turn your thermostat up, and hook up an ohm meter and follow the instructions on how to do that. You can check and see if your heater uh, works or not. But it has the thermostat has to be in the on position or closed position to do that. Um, again, I've I've contemplated doing that video. I don't know how many hundreds of times, and we have yet to do it. But you can check it with an ohm meter that way. I yeah. remember next time I commit a crime, by the way, to uh, use an old heater and burn off my finger. That's right. <laughs> Just grab two three hundred watt heaters in each hand. Just- these exactly. two right there those two no fingerprint <laughs> don't try that at home kids all right Rob, so I, you'd be leaving dna all over the place just on the heaters just on the heaters oh, yeah, yeah that smell of a uh, diabetic bacon <laughs> <laughs> okay. i smell bacon mm, rob's 
anywho, so a couple questions we got from uh, the listeners here. Can you get better life out of a heater in a sump compared to a tank if you do the Rob's method of putting the pump above the heater? Your mom asked that? That was Daryl, but I just added that last bit because oh, okay. we already talked a little bit about this. But yeah, still- if it's in a sump, technically, could it last longer? Um, you're going to get – if you have it in an area of high movement and um, if you have an overflow, I would rec- – especially like a Durso-style overflow – where you have a standpipe in your overflow that's getting all the water coming through it, that's where you want to put it. I always recommend putting it in the overflow because you, all your tank water comes through there. It's hidden from view. It's away from fish. It's away from plants. It's not in your sump. That's number one. Um, second place, if you are advanced enough to figure out how to build a sump, the Rob's method, I'm not going to recommend that, but yes, it would work equally well but I don't recommend it because 99% of people are not going to do it right. Um, just avoid putting a heater in a sump. Uh, if you put a heater in a sump, for sure, with cobalt heaters, it instantly voids your warranty on glass heaters. On the neotherm, it does not on the plastic heaters, but on the glass heater, if we find out it's in a sump, your, your warranty's void. Uh, because we know 99% of the time it's, you're gonna, it's going to be user error. Um, so... Will it perform if you do it absolutely correct? Yes, but do I recommend it? Absolutely not. All right. So the other thing that we have for topic is um, wattage per gallon. It used to be like back in the day, especially reading old manuals, that it was X watts to this many gallons. Now, with different efficiencies, how, how has that changed? I know with your models, I've looked up on your website, a 300 watt for... Um, your highest end heater is up to 100 gallons, whereas the different other version goes to 80 gallons. Is that just for efficiency or how the, the thermostat runs? What, why are the, those changing? Are the heater just getting better? Uh, that has to do with what we talked about before, the ceramic core versus resin versus mica, and then the, also the heat transfer of the plastic versus glass. So the one that you're talking about um, but the higher efficiency is our neotherm heater, and those are resin filled. Uh, so the nichrome wire is run down, and separ- separated by mica in the initial phase, but then the entire thing is filled with resin. So we have a very efficient heat um, sink and emission and heat transfer in that, that we can get through the resin and plastic better than we can with glass. So we can get a higher wattage uh, to gallon ratio with that technology. Um, if it's a glass technology, um, you're going to see whether it's glass, borosilicate, or quartz, they're all going to be very, 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 very similar, if not exactly the same. And if they're not exactly the same or very, very, very similar, um, there's some marketing whiz bangs going on because there just isn't, there isn't the ability with the existing technology that's in the marketplace to make them that much different. Um, where you see the biggest difference is in the in glass heaters is within the specification of the accuracy. And that has to do with a little bit of whatever the insulator or heatsink core, whether ceramic mica, sand, or whatever, and also the thermostat technology. Again, we haven't talked about thermostats yet, but the thermostat really affects that resolution, but not necessarily the wattage per gallon. Well, 
before we go into thermostats, we have one more question from uh, one of our, our listeners is if I have an old heater that's been going for 10 years, should I be upgrading just for the sake of energy efficiency or should I just let it run? Is it going to cost me more to run it or buy a new heater? You're not, uh, unless you're switching over to a uh, different like neotherm style technology with a, a higher heat ratio, it, any glass heater that you buy today, and I say glass and I'm meaning borosilicate um, quartz or whatever, I'm saying glass in general, um, you're not going to get any better heat transfer in general. Um, why should you replace your heater? Um, you should replace your heater anytime it's out of warranty. Um, for instance, and I'm really not trying to preach commercials here for my own brand, but if you have a heater that's less than three years old and we determine that it's not your fault, we're going to warranty it and we're going to give you a new heater every time. Uh, no, question, no questions asked as far even if you don't have proof of purchase. If, if it's determined by our customer service staff, and sometimes, uh, not every time, but sometimes it makes it all the way up to me. Um, oh. If it is our fault, or if there, we determine that there's something wrong with that heater, we're gonna replace it. And there's a date code either on a tag or on the printed on the cord itself, depending on the year that uh, we made a transition to have it printed directly on the cord. Uh, if that date code or that lock code of that heater is within the three year spec, we're going to replace it. So for a thirty to fifty dollar investment, especially like Rob, Rob's, you mentioned, you had those high end rainbows that you got from Gary Lang that you killed. It was probably a five year old heater. Like you're spending all this money and trying to researching on where to get these fish. Like just get a warranty so that you're covered. Um, I would never recommend using a heater more than three or four years old ever. I replace them every three years on my on my aquarium. I have forever. Um, they, they, they're not, they're the most volatile piece of equipment and the most vital. Again, if you're in the north, you shouldn't be keeping tropical fish when it's negative 40 outside. The only reason hey. you're able to do it is because of this $30 heater, right? And it's working its butt off to try to keep that temperature stable for them. And they wear out. It's like, you know, you don't keep a set of tires on your car forever. And eventually they wear out. It's a moving part, even though it's not moving. It's a it's a it's a living or a living piece, and it's vibrating constantly. It's heating up, it's cooling down, and they wear out. So, um, if you have a ten year old heater, replace it as soon as you can can uh, through whatever your economic situation is with a new one, and get something that's within warranty, so that if there is any issue, that the manufacturer, any quality manufacturer, is going to cover um, the situation. But if it's out of warranty, it's out of our hands. So one more question before thermostats and what does warranty cover? Cause I have a, you know, this assumption that if I buy a product, the warranty covers the product. It, unless it has some other labeled insurance, like for instance, if I buy a, a wall mount for a TV, there's two different wall mounts I buy. It would be a wall mount for, you know, just my, my own risk. Here's a $25 wall mount, your problem. But if I buy that $125 wall mount, that's coming with an insurance policy that if it breaks, it covers my TV and it has to be installed by a professional. So I assume that all Korean products only cover the heater itself to be replaced, not, you know, my damages to my fish and all the craziness. What well, what does the warranty actually cover? I knew this was going to come up and I didn't really want to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> it covers you all. Don't have so what a, what, I'm going to give you an analogy that one of uh, a friend on the livestock uh, side of things. Uh, told me one time because 
they sell they sold our heaters or they still do and they had somebody that came through them with a claim and they were trying to charge us i don't know it was something ridiculous amount seven thousand dollars in livestock and he goes i don't understand people that want a heater to replace everything in their aquarium if i'm driving down the road on firestone tires and the tire blows out and it takes out my entire right side quarter panel, the passenger door, I spin out, I hit a rail and it munches my front bumper. Um, I don't expect Firestone to cover all that damage because I got 70,000 miles on that tire. And I think that's a great analogy in that um, our heater manufacturer is responsible all the time. Uh, no. And does our warranty cover, specifically in the letter of the law, cover that kind of thing? Absolutely not. Are we specifically say we'll only replace the heater? Now, that being said, if we have a problem that is determined is a, man, a definite manufacturing error and it causes some definite problems on a case-by-case -case situation, we will work with the person. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to replace everything. That doesn't mean we're going to replace anything. Um, but on a case-by-case -case basis, we do work what, with what we can to make sure the consumer's done right by anything that our heater causes. Um, See, we, we can't let you go without, you know, hitting some, at least the hard questions. Yeah. Otherwise we would have a bad reputation. The letter, the letter like, of the law is no, we do not have to cover anything. Um, but we don't want to, we don't want to be that manufacturer that leaves people out there hanging. Um, now, you know, if you zip tie your heaters together, <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, <laughs> no, no, then, we, we we're we're good. That was a, that was a plenty of an explanation. Otherwise, the third episode that we're going to have less on, he's going to bring his uh, in-house lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Well, and for for instance, we started off this whole discussion a long time ago about doing water changes, and if you're if you water change and your heater your heater cracks, and then your tank you know suffers because of that. That's why we require pictures of any failure. We can tell immediately if you've done a water change and you crack the. And if that's the case, we're not covering it. Uh, we we may we may on certain occasions help you out. Um, it depends on how nice you are. Um, if you're super abrasive, you're not getting anything. Nice carries a lot of weight. Well, there we go. So thermostats. Let's 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 uh, let's let's finish your list, but get, get them fired up. There we go. I got them. I got them, boys. <laughs> I got them. All right, thermostats. So way back in the day, the very first thermostat for an aquarium heater was developed. And are you going to play the video? Because I got this little hand thing I do. Um, so the, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're we're, we're watching yeah. live on the Discord. Yeah. So. I just don't know if you do it on the uh, on the, the other. No, we, so we don't record the video. It's just a podcast. That's in the okay. future. We're going to uh, go on Spotify okay. soon. Someday you'll be a contender, huh? You never know. <laughs> you got to let Joe have all the YouTube fun. Yeah. So, um, well, I'll try not to use my hands then. Um, back in the day. Uh, if you remember, and some of you may still have the the style thermostat in your wall if you haven't upgraded to digital or the Nest style thermostat. It's the old slider or the dial. And when you turn the dial, or you, I'm using my hands, you'll hear when you when you hit the temperature that, you, that you're currently at, you'll hear a click. And what that click is, is a, it's called a bimetal thermostat. You'll have, you'll, it's basically like a light switch in your wall where you have the wire coming from your the wall and it's touching a piece of metal. And that's where that's your your hot side of the switch. 
<clears throat> the other side where the wire goes to your heating element is attached to two pieces of metal that are laminated together. There are two different pieces of two different types of metal that are that are laminated together. And they expand and contract at different rates depending on the temperature. And what they'll do is they'll when one expands and contract or the other one is expanding or contracting at a faster rate, it will cause that piece of metal to bend. And it will either bend towards the thermostat or bend away from the thermostat. And so as it's colder, those two pieces of metal as they're expanding, contracting, will bend towards the, the other pole on your switch, and then they physically touch. And when they physically touch, that's when your heater turns on. And it's just like turning a switch on on the, on the wall, and you hear that click, and sometimes you might even see a little spark coming through the plastic on the wall, and that spark is as they're coming close, there's a little bit of arcing as they finally touch. And that is essentially the exact same thing that's happening in a bimetal heater, is there's one piece of metal that is moving and touching the other piece of metal, completing the circuit and turning the heater on. How do you replicate that in such a tiny space inside your aquarium heater? Engineering wizardry comes in. And that, that is exactly why we have problems with heaters failing, is that you have this big electrical box with 12 or 14 gauge wire that are handling that switch. And if you look in your, say, in your room, uh, like in a normal room, you might have, say, two or three light bulbs, and say those are 50 or 60, or 60 watt light bulbs, that's 180 watts. Uh, a lot of aquariums use a 300 watt heater. So you have roughly double the amount of wattage going through a much thinner ribbon of a switch. And that a lot of that power coming through causes arcing, especially if you have any sort of heat or any sort of moisture getting into it through a failed seal in that immersion heater like we talked about before, you can get arcing. And whenever you get arcing, that's when you get problems with heater failure either on or off. And this is where my hands come in. Um, what will happen is because this isn't a pure movement, this is two pieces of metal laminated together that are fighting each other. And what you'll get is fluttering. And those that's part of that switch will flutter really close to your other pole, but it won't actually touch. And that fluttering will cause potential arcing. And that arcing can then superheat one side of that pole or other. And that superheating can then, once it finally touches, will cool almost instantly and then weld itself shut, which means it's welded on. Or it can, over time, actually melt the other part of the switch and part of it will fall off and then it won't have enough travel anymore to actually touch the other pole and then your heater won't turn on anymore. So Ooh. a bi-metal bi heater has a potential failing in either direction because of the arcing and long-term use. So the 10-year-old heater has been doing this hundreds of times, potentially a day on the high end, you know, at least 12 times a day on the low end of it coming on and off and potentially arcing. Those seals at the top have been letting little droplets of moisture in forever. The corrosion happens and you should be replacing that heater. But that thermostat is a point of failure. That fluttering and the arcing can cause all sorts of issues. Now, um, before I get into how we get around that, any questions about that? Because I'll keep rambling. I just have a conspiracy theory, right? I know you're not gonna, you're not gonna believe me, but I think that everybody from the Lord of the Rings series that were hobbits 
are now suddenly on your employee line assembling them. Just saying. You need the tiny fingers. Oompa Loompas. Right. Anyways, continue. I've got to, I've got to plead the fifth on that. See, that's, that's classified information. He'll share with us a lot. Not that. Just the way he was, he was describing all the fluttering and all the touching. It, it reminded me of my first high school dance. I, I feel like that I want like my first time like square dancing choreographed by Les. Don't you? No. <laughs> no anyways, go ahead, buddy. We apologize. Tangent. Wow. So never in my life did I think that Peter's discussion would end up talking about square dancing. <laughs> I'm not sure how that happened. That's incredible. We, we offer a very specific service here at the aquarium, guys. Rob right. often runs the microwave with the door open. Hey, hey, we're not licking frogs either. <laughs> That's another That's podcast. podcast. Yeah, wow. Square dancing and heater technology. I really got, I got to think about that one. You got, well, you threw me for a loop on that one. So, right. please, please don't so, let us hold you back. So, how, what do we do as manufacturers? That this is ancient technology. How do we get around that if you're still using bimetal? And there's two ways of fixing that. One is by putting uh, neodymium magnets, tiny magnets on your contact point. So when they get close, you don't allow it to flutter. It gets close, it snaps shut. And then once it snaps shut, it's on until you're hot enough that you have enough power for it to pull it off. So there's no fluttering in or out. And you end up with a, a really consistent snap on and snap off of that. Now, the downside to that is that you lose resolution. So you decrease the liability and increase the longevity of that switch, but you lose resolution. So heaters that don't have a neodymium switch uh, that use a bimetal heater technology or thermostat technology can have a tighter resolution, say, plus plus or minus 0.1, I'm sorry, plus or minus one, or maybe two degrees Fahrenheit. But if you use a neodymium heater, your resolution is going to be three to four degrees resolution. You got any other questions for him? No, I'm just, I'm oh. just totally blown away by all the, wait, the, wait. the different. I do. So if that's the case for adjustable heaters, what's the case for all these like pre-done heaters? I think, what are they supposed to default at like 76 or something, 78? It it depends on it depends on exactly what the heater technology is on that. So you adjust like um, on on a lot of the heaters, there's a little dial on top, and you're adjusting. Basically, you're adjusting the fulcrum point on the bimetal heater by doing the adjustment. So it's going up or down, so it will travel quicker or, or longer to it. So you you increase the the thermostat potential on it. Um, so on a preset, you just don't have that adjustment capability. Now, I got a strange question. I have heard people talk about this, and I don't know if there's any truth to it. Is there going to be such a thing as an LED heater? Or infrared? Well, there's two different things there. So what's the question? I actually had, had somebody, one of my friends who's been in the business a very, very long time, tell me that he's been trying to get these LED heaters, which are supposed to use, you know, a lot less watts. Wait, uh, and I'm trying to think. Is that about, the how, same guy that told you about this licking frog conspiracy? No, no, that's mine. Well, will there be an LED heater? I'm not going to say there's not. Do LEDs produce heat? Um, they do, but they don't radiate heat necessarily out of the LED element. The, the heat comes off the heat sink off the back of the LED. That's why LEDs are so fantastic about that. And LEDs, the reason that they're so great at light emission is that they produce more light with less infrared. So 
it's kind of going backwards against LED technology. And the whole reason that LEDs are are efficient is they can produce light without heat. Um, exactly. So, so, but you need heat to heat. So what about infrared? So on the, to finish the answer on the LEDs, I'm not saying it's out of the realm of possibility, but it's definitely not on anybody's immediate radar because it's going against the, the mainstream technology of LEDs is to create as much light with the least amount of heat. So that's all, all the capability and all the potential in LEDs is going to produce light, like visible light with the least amount of heat. And so there's basically nobody doing research in the other direction. So now is, is there a possibility? Uh, maybe, um, but it's going against every vein of the LED industry to do that. So I wouldn't say it's probable. Yeah, when he told me this, I, I thought exactly the same thing. I thought, how can this even work? But he says it's something like they're working over in Germany on this. And I'm just going, whatever. I mean, but he's yeah. someone... he look a toad when he told you this before or after this. What's that? Did he look a toad before or after this? <laughs> he did not look a toad. That was actually a conversation that just came up because we're talking about LED lights and then it went right into LED heaters. And I said, I've never heard such a thing. Wait, wait. Are you willing to divulge this gentleman's name? No. Oh, called it. It was so, you. So on the LED, <laughs> I mean, complete tangent on technology, but the, the LED, you have the, the, the actual diode, which is um, a, you know, it's a, a chip on one side. Then there's these TJ joints. Uh, TJ is where, where the, um, where the, chip actually touches the the positive negative pole and then behind the chip you have your your heat sink so you're attaching your diode to a heat sink and then you got these two poles that come off of it um, the tj uh, which is the temperature at the junction that is the critical spot on any led construction and it's a solder joint where those two poles come together and touch the the led connects to the anode and the diode pole. And that TJ has to, because of the solder technology that exists in production LEDs right now, has to remain below 70 degrees C. If it gets above 70 degrees C, you have TJ failure. Um, completely different topic about LED technology versus this, but that's one of the reasons why I would find it very irregular uh, that somebody would be trying to use LED technology as the heat because the TJ at the diode to the anode and diode or point poles has to remain below 70 degrees because it's solder, at least right now. That makes total sense. Now back to infrared. Infrared is uh, typically a contact heat. It's not a radiant heat. And you need to have it um, hitting something and kind of radiating on something to do it. I don't know of anybody working on that as well. Um, may maybe there's an opportunity there, but... Uh, I don't know, and I haven't seen or heard of anybody working on that at all. So to wrap this up, I know there's probably a ton you miss. Again, you said we don't know what type of, uh, what was it, uh, a, a landmine we, we walked into when we first started this yeah. in a can of worms. But uh, is there any major pieces you felt like we, we direly missed before we... Um, the, the only other thing, we talked a lot about bimetal technology. So the next thing on thermostats, the next generation, which came out uh, some, you know, eight, nine years ago now, is electronic thermostats. So electronic thermostats take away that 
that bimetal uh, physical movement and use computer chips to control it. They're a lot more accurate. They are a solid state function, so you don't have the moving parts. Um, Neotherm, Hagen, I believe JBJ has some. There's a handful of manufacturers that have them, uh, but that's the next generation. They're a lot more reliable. Um, as far as the thermostat, they take away a lot of those pitfalls, um, but there is a higher cost to them. Um, so we talked about casings, we talked about heating elements, whether it's PTC um, or nichrome wire, we talked about the fill, and we talked about thermostats. So that, that's, and we talked a little bit about history. So, And what not to do with zip ties. But I appreciate your time, Les. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. We'll we'll get you on. Hopefully, uh, we didn't uh, you know rise up your lawyers for episode three with you. But uh, hopefully, not. we appreciate we appreciate all uh, all your time and uh, and honesty, sir. But uh, last question: um, <clears throat> What in the secret R and D lab can you share with us that's coming out for any cobalt products? Hmm? Yeah. Um, well, we're working on this LED infrared heater. Oh, <laughs> God, we we nailed it right to the wall. Nailed it. We'll uh we'll, we'll take a one percent of royalty. It, we have it, and it's controlled via brain waves. It's pretty fantastic. You just think about what temperature you want, and the LED infrared system just makes the tank exactly that temperature. It's pretty awesome. And it's zip tie compatible. Uh, no, you, you actually it's, it's, it's in the instructions. You zip tie it to your under gravel to lift tube. Only uh, above your sump, above your pump. We funny broken spirits. I love it. All, all right, again, uh, thanks, Les. Eat? And uh, you know, guys, stop by. Be like uh, Joe. Come, come visit us. And uh, you know, we're still uh, still planning on a couple episodes here in the future. We're looking to do conspiracy theories as a podcast. So Jimmy is obsessed what kind of conspiracy theories. Hey, I'm telling you, you know, all those manufacturers are jerks, and they're trying to make your life miserable. So no, there's no. a lot that, of conspiracy theories. We're going, we're going deeper than that, sir. All right. <laughs> Let's do a two-hour podcast on how to avoid filling warranties. I am doing some hard <laughs> on some conspiracies that will blow your mind. That will make Jimmy's obsession with Bigfoot look like. Oh, I can't, know, I can't wait. Look to hear like it's all, normal. I can't wait to hear all JFK, you know, and Elvis are still working on stuff it'll in be, a lab somewhere. It'll be like the same level that Abraham Lincoln invented peanut butter conspiracy theory. Yeah. Didn't know that. But wait, if you no, have your conspiracy theories. <laughs> Go to AquariumGuysPodcast.com, email us, text us, call us, go to Discord, leave us a message, and uh, we love you all. Les, love you, Got anything, Jimmy? Well, I'm, I'm sorry the uh, sunset on the beach didn't work, guys, but uh, hopefully uh, we made it work once I got back to the condo. So, I, I tell you that. Share that beautiful scenery with everybody. From the bottom of our heart, uh, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule and your vacation. Uh, our apologies to your family for uh, taking yeah. you away, but thanks a lot. I mean, worst case scenario now, Adam's going to pour himself a section of the Thank you there for you that. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. Anytime. Really appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. Please go to your favorite place where podcasts are found, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever they can be found. Like, subscribe, and make sure you get push notifications directly to your phone so you don't miss great content like this. I never knew that a Minnesota accent could be so sexy until I heard Adam's voice. Go fuck yourself, don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's my boy, don't you know.